Good to see everyone out this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. It's been a good week this past week. As, as uh, Brother Rick already mentioned, we were able to have a gospel meeting uh, that started last Sunday, ended on Wednesday, and Brother Luther talked about grace and got to know him a little bit more, and it's, it's good to be able to get to know the people that you have fellowship with, and particularly in such a literal way, uh, as we are supporting him and the work that he's doing uh, in South Carolina, and so it's, it's just a, it's a beautiful thing when you get to know the person a little bit more that you're able to have that kind of fellowship with, and uh, it was just a good week overall as we were able to have more frequent discussions about the Bible and, and the topics therein. As I said, if you want to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, this morning the lesson is going to be almost like a part two to a lesson that I did a couple months ago, and there's a reason for that. If you recall, we looked at a story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18, and specifically how he was called a troubler of Israel. And, and you might remember who the one is accusing him of, that, of such a title. Ahab, one of the worst kings of Israel that you ever see. Not the worst necessarily, but definitely top of the list. And he is the one who calls Elijah a troubler of Israel. And really, as we look throughout that study, what one of the things that we mentioned, and hopefully one of the main things that we learned, is that the, the reason the trouble came is not because of, of Elijah preaching God's word. It is because of the destruction that comes with sin. Um, and, and so, you know, even when people try to blame the one that is on the side of truth, on the side of God, even when they're the ones that are blamed for causing all the trouble, we need to remember that it is really sin that brings that kind of destruction. And not just that, but really that no matter what the, the claims may be, we need to remember the reality of the situation. And I kind of want to go just a little bit deeper in that this morning because Elijah was a troubler of Israel to a degree. Ahab claims this, and, and really what Ahab is trying to do is, is try to act like it's all his fault. Now, we know better, as we already discussed. But today, what I want to focus on in 1 Kings chapter 19, just a chapter after that, is how Elijah really did have some, if, if you want to say, fault in the matter. There was contention and strife when he enters the scene that wouldn't be there if he just gave up on the truth. That would not be there if he just said, I don't really think I want to do this anymore because I only get the, the blunt end of all the opposition. And so while we understand that, that Ahab, he's just, he's just a fool. Really, he has been leading terribly. The nation of Israel has been going further away from God's law. And so they are just inviting calamity upon themselves. They're inviting the curses of a disobedience upon themselves. But there is a notion that Elijah was a troubler because he wouldn't let go of the truth. And I want to really focus on that with this study in 1 Kings chapter 19 because I think we need to realize the, the steadfastness that, that God's people are supposed to have. And in this story, you see Elijah, he needed to realize that his job was not over. Even after such an amazing victory on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18, and you kind of see this depicted there on the screen, is... is the, the prophets of Baal or the priests of Baal, they tried to get their God to respond and they even cut themselves, mutilated themselves. Nothing. Deafening silence. When you have Elijah, one man, 
And he even makes it harder on himself. Not only does he put the, the, uh, set the altar up, but he creates a trench and he fills it up several different times with water. And so that way it's just, there, there's no way anything's going to happen. It consumes not only the offering, but it consumes the water around it. And the difference is because you have a true God, the creator, in comparison or maybe contrast to idols, wood and stone that, that aren't living. And yet man bows uh, and subjects themselves to. But regardless, you have such a dramatic contrast and such a, just a clear victory for God's people. And yet you come to 1 Kings chapter 19, and Elijah, as we're going to see, it looked like even though there was victory, immediately there's defeat. And we're going to see that in the first couple verses here of 1 Kings chapter 19. And so let's just read very quickly those first two verses. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In verse 3, And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And we'll continue on in just a moment. But in the first few verses, what you find is, even on the heels of such a dramatic victory on Mount Carmel, Elijah has to go into exile once again. He has to run and flee for his life. Because here Jezebel hears about the victory that God has had, and a very clear one. And what does she want to do? She wants to bring Elijah to justice. And so a true servant of God doing as God intends for him to do and has instructed him to do, and there is great victory, and yet you have such a, this just doesn't jive with what we, how we would um, read stories today. This doesn't connect with the movies that we watch today. Generally, the hero, he gets the victory, and it stays that way. You don't immediately have to go back into exile. You don't immediately have to feel more loss. No, the good guys win. That's how the story ends. In reality, it's, it's not a fairy tale. In reality, even for God's people, we have to understand that the opposition never ends. And it almost seems as if, it, as you look through the text, the victory of Mount Carmel is overshadowed by Elijah's need to run. And so we just need to understand from the very beginning that just because there's victory, that doesn't mean that there's never again going to be conflict. It doesn't mean that everything is settled. In fact, Israel, the whole nation, not just to mention its, its, its awful leader at this time, Ahab, and maybe, maybe more so Jezebel because she seems to do everything for him. But regardless, across the board, people had gone astray from God's law, and dramatically so. And even though this was such a beautiful victory, there's, there's going to be a lot more that needs to change before, before that victory can be fully enjoyed. And so I think that there's some things that we need to take from that, that even when there, there may be smaller victories in our own lives, we can't become despondent, as I think Elijah does in this story here, when, when maybe a little bit more loss comes. Or maybe there's, a, there's kind of some hindrances that are still in the way. We haven't gotten rid of every stumbling block. This is something that I think about frequently. I, I, and, and Elijah and the rest of the prophets, I've been thinking about them a lot lately. When it comes to preaching the word, no matter what, and regardless of the opposition, and regardless of maybe the setbacks you have, Time and time again, you, you will be having a Bible study with somebody. And, and you think that you've gotten to a certain milestone, and now we don't have to talk about these things anymore. Maybe there are some questions about baptism that, that were really heated at the beginning, but now you've kind of answered some of those questions. All right, we never have to talk about that again. But then the next week, 
they come back and they say, well, I've talked to somebody about this. Or they say, I read an article about this online, and you know what? I'm not so sure about this anymore. <sighs> and what happens? A little bit of discouragement, maybe a little bit of depression, because you think you're making progress. But that doesn't mean there's not going to be any regression ever again. And what we have to do is we have to wade through those waters. We have to learn how to deal with that kind of maybe, uh, you know, one step back or maybe even two steps back. We have to keep focusing on moving forward. Because if we don't understand that this is the inevitable truth of this life, we will become discouraged. We, it will just lead to weakness and frailty. And this leads us to the next point, beginning in verse 4. Uh, verse 4 of 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah reaches a very serious level of depression and discouragement. In verse 4 it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a, a bread baked a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, to the mountain of God. Now what's interesting as you read just those few, those few verses there is that do you, do you notice the emotional state that Elijah is in? Lord, I am I'm ready. I am done. I have done everything I, I can. And now, after even Mount Carmel, and after they saw what you did, I'm yet again running for my life. I can't do this anymore. Let me just pause for a second. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever gotten to the point where you think, I j it would just be better to not have to feel this pain anymore? <clears throat> It would be better if I just didn't have to suffer through the tragedies of this life anymore. I'll be honest with you. I felt that a few times. And I know that some of you are probably looking at me like, you're only 26, dude. Yeah. And I know that that just means that there's a lifetime of things to come. But I'll tell you, there's been some moments where, where true, I'm not talking little, petty, immature grievances, but I mean true tragedy, tragedy has struck. And it has made me think, I, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. Even Elijah got to this point. And I think that there should be some encouragement there because when you get to the New Testament and you have some of those moments where, the, where it harkens back to the journeys of Elijah his, and his preaching and trying to teach a people that just don't care about God's word anymore, even through all of that, the New Testament looks back and says, hey, you want to be like him. And why? Because I don't think he stays in this point of depression. He realizes where he's at, he listens to God, and he moves on. But we need to see how he gets there. But I just, again, I just wanted to pause for a moment to see, aren't his feelings of despondency and, and futility relatable? As I said, I've been there before, and I know that many of you have been there as well. Maybe you're someone who has tried to help out in the church but gets shot down. And you're just trying to do something to help. You're trying to aid the congregation, and maybe you're even attacked for it. Well, what then? You may be led to think, I'm, I'm just done. You may be led to think, I, don't, I can't do this anymore. Or maybe you try to obey scripture in practicing church discipline, but others, and they are actual Christians, say that you're the problem. Much like Ahab, you, you're nothing but a troubler. You're just causing strife, you're causing contention, and you're just thinking, I'm just trying to hold to the standard. I'm just trying to do what God told me to do. How am I the problem here? But you're the one that's called a troubler. 
And there's so many ways that this can happen. And, and, and I just say, again, we need to look to this example of Elijah because what often happens when we fall into a spiritual despair like him, it leads to this kind of mindset of just let me die. What that sounds like today is I quit. And frankly, we don't get to quit. We never get to retire in this life as a Christian. This is a dangerous mindset to get in. And so as we look at this really low point of Elijah's ministry, of his teaching and his life, I want to ask if you noticed what happens in verses 5 through 8. Did you notice that after Elijah says, let me die, who is still with him? But God. Though this was realistically unfortunate and, and frankly just wrong, Elijah had forgotten that God was with him. Over and over in verses 5 through 8, you have uh, God uh, giving provision to Elijah even though he's in the wilderness and even though there would be really no real way for him to find food and water, what does God do? He, he gives it to him. Wakes him up and says, eat. There's still more for you to do. Eat. You need some energy for what you're about to do. And so what I, what I think we need to take from this is just, I think just plain from the text, Elijah had forgotten that God was with him and how easily can we forget like Elijah that we still have God on our side especially when those low points come. Go over to Romans chapter 9 very quickly. Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. You might just put a bookmark here because we'll be coming back to Romans in just a moment. But Romans chapter 9 and verse 35. Or chapter 8. Uh, that should be chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. Paul, while discussing, I think, some of the worries that maybe some Christians might have, he begins talking about the victory that we have in Christ. And in verse 35, he gets very, very pointed. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Let me just pause for a moment. That is really what Elijah was dealing with. Have any of us dealt with that? Kind of harken back to what the Hebrew writer says. You haven't resisted to the point of death yet. So maybe that puts our... Uh, comparative stri strife into maybe, maybe into some kind of per perspective. But continuing on, verse 36, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me ask you something. If you're a Christian, are you in Christ Jesus or are you not? Well, you should be. If you're truly a Christian, if you have fellowship with him, you're in Christ Jesus. And what does Paul say? What in the world is going to be able to separate you other than you? And I think that that's another thing we have to learn from Elijah, is that the only thing that keeps us from relying on God in this relationship, from, from remembering that we have this beautiful blessing in these moments of great despondency, is ourselves. We are the only ones that can choose whether or not we're going to obey or reject, whether or not we're going to quit or continue in our relationship with God. Nothing is going to be able to separate us. But again, how easy is it for us to, to, to forget that point? That nothing's going to be able to separate us. And, but because we get so depressed sometimes, we, we, just, we act like, oh, there's nothing else that I can do. No, there is. Though the physical conditions are rough, 
The spiritual conditions are perfect. Why? Because we have God. We are in Christ Jesus, and that is enough. And so let's, let's look a little bit further at the rest of the story, beginning in verse 9 of 1 Kings chapter 19, and let's see how Elijah is supposed to get past this. What does God say to him? 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 9, it says, Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Son of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. I like the New King James Version. It says, a, a, a still small whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he kind of doubles down. He repeats the same thing he said just a few verses ago. He hasn't learned necessarily what God is trying to teach him. Remember, when God asks a question, is it for his benefit? Does he not already know the answer? No, when God asks a question, it's supposed to get his creation to think. So what does God say after Elijah says the exact same thing, that, that he has been zealous, but he has just been rejected by the people? In verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel king over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of uh, Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And then in verse 19 onward, it says that he departs from there, and he begins to do exactly what God asks him to do. But here's my question. In Elijah's despondency, what does God say? First of all, does he say, does he, does he really just coddle Elijah's depression? Does he coddle him and say, oh, you know, don't, don't worry about this. Look at you, so sad and so depressed. Don't worry. I'm going to find somebody else to take care of this. You know what? You've done enough. You just, you just chill for the rest of the time here. You've, you've worked so hard. And I kind of uh, like how it's kind of like what, when, when Moses is giving excuses to God and he says, oh, I'm slow of speech. I, I just never, I've never been good with, with my tongue or for oratory. God doesn't really speak about that. In fact, it almost sounds like he says, I never said you were. And I think the same thing happens here with Elijah. He doesn't really address all the things necessarily, at least maybe not as directly as Elijah would like. Instead, he says, you know, you go. Not, don't say that about yourself, but he gives instructions he doesn't say, no, don't, you're stronger than this. You can do this. I believe in you. No, he gives instructions to follow. And so instead of coddling him, we need to see what God actually tells him and learn from that. What do we do when we get to this point like Elijah? We don't get to quit. We don't get to give up. We don't get to slink back into a defeated laziness or stagnation. What we need to do is follow the instructions that God gives us. And so what does God say? 
In verse 15, he begins with the word go. One of the, I think, most interesting commands that God gives us all throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. How does the Great Commission start? Go. Making disciples. And there's a lot in that command. Because what it says is, we must obey and we must go and not just make disciples, but just do what God has said. And so there's a few things that I think we can, to make this brief, I just put three things here. He starts with, you go, you rise, you know, put yourself back together and you begin doing my, keep on with my ministry, keep on teaching my word and my will to the people of Israel. And in fact, he starts giving instructions about who you're going to anoint king over different places. Elijah's not going to be alive to watch Jehu bring justice on the house of Ahab. But what does he do? He already is putting into place God's plan, setting it in motion even further. I don't know if Elijah necessarily understands that at the beginning, but doesn't that just give us a little bit more encouragement? At least it should. He says maybe, you may be tired, but you need to keep going. You don't get to stop. He says that you need to make sure that just because you feel alone, you don't believe that you know, very limited perspective. And in fact, I think that's another thing that we need to take from Elijah's uh, story here is that we do have such a limited perspective. It seems that though Elijah had done all of these things, he had been obeying God up to this point. Because of this, this is why he had so much opposition brought against him. This is why he had so much strife in his own life. People hated him. Why? Because he was doing what God had said. And isn't there so much relatability there today? People will hate us. People will get mad at me for just saying, I, I can't support that. You don't even have to, you, you're not even shouting at the top of your lungs like everybody else is. Somebody just says, hey, why aren't you raising your glass with us? I, I just, I can't do that. Hey, why, why aren't you raising, that, raising this flag for, for Pride Month? Because I don't believe in that. And what happens? Oh, you're one of those people. What a terrible person you are. And you get labeled with all of these very volatile, inflammatory terms and names. And you're just thinking, I, I just couldn't join you. I haven't even spoken yet. What's going to happen when I do have to start citing and quoting these passages? Probably going to get even worse. But what I think we learn here in this story is God says, maybe it will get worse. That doesn't mean you get to stop. You need to keep being a troubler. You need to continue doing the things that have brought this opposition on you. He doesn't say, hey, you messed up. In fact, Elijah had been doing what God had said. He doesn't say you failed. He doesn't say, may, you, may, you might should have done this a little bit differently. What God says is you need to keep doing what really you have been doing. And that probably is going to bring more opposition. That does not mean that we get to say, I'm done. And so what are some things that we need to take from this in application? Looking at these three things and what God gives uh, to instruct Elijah here as he is so depressed and discouraged, I want to start with that first one. You do not get to quit. I think this is one of the most important. I know how easy it can be to fall into the temptation of saying, I'm just not going to do this anymore. Especially when you feel like you've been helping. Especially when you're the one that has been doing everything you can and exerted all of your energy on just helping. And yet you're the one that gets labeled. You're the one that gets attacked. You're the one that gets in trouble. I'm not even the one that's committed the sin. But, but it is your fault. 
And, and I just always come back to that, uh, that example of family. You try and you try to maybe talk to loved ones that have not obeyed the gospel. Maybe it's loved ones that have obeyed the gospel, but they've fallen away. And what happens over and over is you're branded as the one who, who's, cause, who's just the stick in the mud. What do you have to do? You have to keep preaching. The gospel is going to brand us as a troubler, not just in our families, but in the world abroad. What does God say? You keep going. You keep doing what you're doing. You don't get to stop. You don't even get the choice. I mean, you can choose to not preach. You can choose to stop. But guess where that leaves you in your relationship with God? Nothing but judgment. It doesn't matter if people don't listen to you the first time. It doesn't even matter if people don't listen to you ever. It may be that you're in the midst of a people that won't hear what God has to say. What did God tell Isaiah? He's, he just straight up told him, the people aren't going to listen to you. So don't even bother. That's not what he said. They're not going to listen to you, so maybe you just go over here. That's not what he said. He said, they're not going to listen. It doesn't matter. You preach to them anyway. It doesn't matter if no one is going to listen. It doesn't matter if they put their fingers in their ears and over their eyes and they just won't hear and listen to you. You don't stop speaking my words that ultimately lead to eternal life. It doesn't matter what situation we find ourselves in. And I think that's one of the reasons that looking at the prophets is so encouraging. Because even though they truly were in the midst of a people who just would not listen and were obstinate, they keep on going. Even when it got hard and even when it meant that they were the ones that were going to get in trouble for it. I think there's a lot that we need to take from Elijah in that. So we need to do the same. We can't quit. We have to keep going. And, and furthermore, we need to make sure that we don't become weary of doing good. Over in Galatians chapter 6, a very familiar passage, Galatians chapter 6. As Paul is ending his epistle here to the, the church in Galatia that had struggled with, really, apostasy. At the very beginning of the letter, he's, he's, he's just shocked and amazed and flabbergasted by the fact that they have left what they loved so much at the beginning. They had left the gospel for a false one. They had left the gospel for false doctrines and false teachings. And I, so I think it's so very fitting that at the end of this epistle, he says in verse 9 of Galatians chapter 6, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. He doesn't say, don't grow weary of doing good because look at what you're producing right now. He says, you may not be able to see what you're producing right now. But what are you going to reap in the future? What we're doing is it, it kind of in that, farm, that kind of farming uh, illustration, that farming language. He's saying, you're sowing the seed like we often say. It's hard not to you know, go digging and seeing how much, how much development do we have. <laughs> Man, those potatoes sure look good. I hope I didn't just ruin them. <laughs> yep, we just don't get to see. What do we do? We wait in faith, don't we? In confidence that they're going to grow the way they should. As long as we've farmed the right way, as long as we have sown the seed the correct way, have we been sowing the seed the correct way? Have we been just sticking with God's will, sticking with God's word and nothing else? Well, then we can have confidence that in due time we will reap what we have sown. But I think that there's also something to take from that. On the opposite side, we will reap what we have sown, whether it's good or bad. So we need to be careful that we are sticking to this word and making sure that we don't grow weary, that we don't grow tired, because it is so easy to just see that, well, nothing's growing as fast as I'd like. I, I wish that we could have the produce right now. I wish that we could enjoy the harvest right now. Well, guess what? Not every season is the harvest season. But it is coming. 
So don't grow weary. Don't get tired of doing good. And, and I think that this is one of the biggest hang-ups for Christians today because we are trying to do so much to help to grow. We're trying to do so much to help to encourage. We're trying to do so much to help in evangelism. And sometimes we do get hurt along the way. We get shot down. And we get, we get hindrances and stumbling blocks. Even maybe it's from other Christians. But what did God tell Elijah? among a myriad of people, an entire nation that should have known him. It was Israelites, people that had the covenant, that had the law. Even amidst an entire nation that should have known better, he's, don't grow weary of doing what you're doing. And you don't get to say, I'm just done with this. I'm never going to do this again. You know what? I did everything that I could, but I, I was so hurt by this. I'm never doing that again. I've heard Christians say that. And unfortunately, it's not something that I seem to ever stop hearing Christians say. We, we are not allowed to say that. You are not. I am not. There was a, there was a girl, it, I, it was a really cute uh, discussion. Her, her father had gotten discouraged about something that happened, and I don't even know what it was, but it was during the worship service he was leading, and something happened. Someone said something, made a joke, and they were having lunch together. And he was, just, he was just lashing out. He was just so emotional and so upset because he was embarrassed about it. And he said, I'm never doing this again. I'm never going to help. And then his daughter just said very, very calmly, you know, Dad, you don't get to retire as a Christian. And it was just a few words, but I thought it was so profound and so powerful because we don't. We don't get to retire. We don't get to a point where we've just arrived and we get to sit back. You are constantly working no matter what age, no matter what your capability you're constantly working and doing what God has said. So we can't grow weary. And finally, we have to, like Elijah, realize that we are not alone. And then we have to stop acting like we're alone. Because sometimes I think there's a cognitive dissonance there that we, I know what the Bible says. I know that I have God. I know that I have the brethren. But it doesn't feel like it. So therefore, I can't help but act like I'm just by myself here. Well, you're not. And like Elijah, we need to be stirred up by the instruction and the word of the Lord. First of all, there's two, uh, two facets to this, as I just mentioned. We have God. And as we just read in Romans chapter 8, we, we can't forget that. And that should be enough. But even still, God gives us a little bit more encouragement because we don't just have God and our relationship with him and the confidence that that should bring, but we also have the brethren, those that are still faithful. What did he tell Elijah? Listen, there are still 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And in fact, in the previous chapter, when Elijah is talking to, I think his name is Obadiah, I may be getting that confused, I think it's Obadiah, but he's talking to him and he even speaking to this man about how Obadiah himself had saved many of God's people, many of the faithful uh, to the Lord that had not bowed the knee to Baal. And so it almost seems like he's just forgotten it very quickly. But again, you, you, you see how that can happen because look at what a beautiful moment this was on Mount Carmel and yet he's already having to run away. And so it is kind of easy to forget in the moment when you can't help but see nothing but the opposition around you. And so we need to not only focus on God, that we have him and nothing can separate us from him as long as we choose to stay with him. But we also need to remember that we have brethren with us. There are still those that are faithful among us. Over in Romans chapter 11 very quickly. Romans chapter 11. I like how God can use his words in his word to make several points at once. In 1 Kings chapter 19, what God is doing is trying to encourage Elijah and really just give him a, you know, check up from the neck up saying, you're not actually alone. There are still people that are faithful to me. 
There's a, it's a much bigger number than you realize, but then you get to Romans chapter 11, and look what he says, look what Paul says in cha- uh, chapter 11 of verse 2. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. I love how God can do this. In 1 Kings chapter 19, he's using this to tell Elijah, there's more than you realize. And then you get to Romans chapter 11, and making still, still the same point is valid, but he also here is saying, but it's still just a remnant. It's not as much as you might think. And I think that that's encouraging just, to, just that we are able to know that God is so honest with us and we can say, yes, I know that we're never going to be the majority. That's just never been the case. God's made that clear from the beginning. But you know what? Even though it is just a remnant, even though it is a very small minority in comparison to the millions and millions of millions of people that are living in the world, does that do anything against God's victory? No. I can't help but think about Psalm 2 where you have the nations raging against God and what do you hear but the laughter of God from his throne. What are they going to do? They have no power. They have no authority. All they have is a promise of swift and utter judgment. And so we need to learn the lessons, I think, from 1 Kings chapter 19 that Elijah was supposed to learn. That even though there is going to be trouble that comes because we're doing what God wants us to do, that even though it's going to continue We don't get to stop. We don't get to grow weary. And we don't get to make excuses. We have to keep on doing what God has said. And so maybe if you are a Christian, maybe you're the kind of person who has has tried to work hard and has exerted all of that energy and effort and just tried to help. Maybe you have been hurt in the process. Maybe you feel like you just didn't do anything and therefore I'm just going to take it easy from now on. You can make your life right. And in fact, you need to make your life right. Don't think that if you're in that position that you're in a good relationship with God. You're not. Because what does God say as we even talked about in the Bible class? You need to be fruitful. So are you being fruitful? If you're not a Christian, remember what we just talked about in Psalm 2. If you're a part of the nations that are raging against God, what do you have? Nothing but a promise of judgment and destruction and oblivion in hell. Know where you are before God this morning so that way you can make your life right before you leave this morning. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please let your need be made known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.